you have your Bibles this evening, turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, we'll begin reading in verse 14. Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. We've been looking at the uh, seven letters of Jesus to the uh, churches, uh, seven churches. These are seven uh, real churches, real cities that Jesus is writing to. And as I've said each week, uh, if you want to know what's on the heart of Jesus in Revelation, this is the place to really camp out at. Um, as we read these letters, what we want to do is not think about what kind of churches these guys were. I mean, that's part of it. What we really want to do is locate ourselves. Lord, is the good things you're saying, are these things true of me? Uh, are the rebukes or the corrections that you're saying, are these things true of me? Kind of locate yourself in there. And um, tonight we come to the last one of the seven churches. And so look, if you will, in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. And... Um, this is the most scathing letter that Jesus writes to the churches in Revelation of the seven churches. This last one um, is, is a tough one. This is one where Jesus is extremely uh, direct to the people at Laodicea. So let's look at what he says. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me Gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, in white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, there are things that some people find tasty, and the very same thing some other people find disgusting. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? Uh, so let me give you a little test tonight. Uh, how many of you uh, think boiled crawfish is absolutely delicious? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you think they're not delicious? Raise your hand. And you are on my prayer list that God will grant you salvation in Jesus' name. Um, how about squirrel? How many of you think squirrel's tasty? You like squirrel? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you think squirrel's disgusting? Well, I cannot believe some of you grew up in a country. Y'all supposed to know better than that, right? When I went to Ecuador, when I went to Ecuador, uh, one of the delicacies in Ecuador is guinea pig. <laughs> so how many of you would be willing to try guinea pig? Raise your hand. All right. Mike, did you try it, Mike? Never got there. All right. It, how many of you would not? You just wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. Raise your hand. Okay. It tastes a lot like squirrel, to be honest with you. Absolutely. It really, really does. Uh, look around the world, some different things that people around the world have. In Peru, they have a frog smoothie. The frog is usually killed by banging its head against the counter, skin, clean, put it in a blender with water and other ingredients such as quail eggs, honey, spices, and other local plants. <laughs> All right. Anybody willing to try a frog smoothie? Raise your hand up real high. 
We don't have anybody going to try. Nobody's going to try their frog smoothie. In Southeast Asia, there's a fruit called a durian. The durian fruit is called the king of fruits. It's known for its strong odor. Some say it's pleasantly sweet. Others describe the smell as a mix of rotten onions and raw sewage. Others describe it as rotten fish, dragon's breath, and unwashed socks. The smell is so bad that durian is banned on public transportation and hotels in some areas of the country. That's got to be an awful smell of fruit, amen? How about, um, how about fruit bat soup? There's a fruit, it's in Guam. In Guam, there's an animal called the fruit bat, and they make soup out of it. And uh, anybody want to guess what fruit bat tastes like? Chicken. <laughs> so how many of you be willing to try fruit bat soup? Raise your hand real high. Nobody's going to try fruit bat soup. All right, so uh, let's do one more, one more. When Laura was in the Peace Corps, when Laura was in the Peace Corps, um, one of the things they had was fish head soup. And uh, the fish head was there, and the fish head was reserved. That's the best part of the soup. So the fish head was reserved for the guest of honor. And Laura, being in the Peace Corps, being the one who visited there, she would get the fish head for, because she's the guest of honor. So how many of you would want to try fish head soup? Raise your hand real high. Nobody's going to try fish head soup. She actually did eat it, but as she said, after the first time, she said, I'm not company anymore. <laughs> I live here now. I'm not a part of this. Now, I think the worst decision food-wise of everything I've ever seen Laura do was when the kids were little, and uh, we were cleaning up one day, and she's cleaning out under the, uh, in the house, and she found an old sippy cup under the couch. And uh, she pulled it, and I don't know, having children does cause brain damage. Do I have an amen? I think part of it's lack of sleep, and uh, part of it's just whatever. But it just really does cause brain damage. And I, I watched this with my own eyes, kind of like watching a train wreck. You can't believe it's happening. She pulled that sippy cup out from under the couch and wondered what was in it and took a drink. <laughs> and she said, which what she said after she took a drink. I said, what are you doing? She said, I just... Lost my mind. <laughs> I wanted to know what was in it. I said, well, now you know. And so she never did that ever, ever again. Well, what some people find, now nobody would find that tasty, right? What some people find tasty, other people find disgusting. The people in the church at Laodicea were very, very comfortable in their church. And Jesus found it disgusting. It's called the lukewarm church. Uh, you actually could say it's the church that made Jesus sick. I don't say that gleefully, I don't say that happily, I don't say that joyfully, um, but when something nauseates you, you're sick, right? And that's what Jesus says about this church at Laodicea. It said it's a church that made him want to throw up. And so we want to take a look at that tonight because we really, really don't want to be this church. So we've been talking about these churches. Uh, we talk about locating ourselves in these churches, listening to the warnings, listening to the encouragements Jesus had. Uh, we've seen in Ephesus, it was a church that was working. Jesus commended them for that. But they had left their first love, and so they needed to come back. Smyrna was a church that was being persecuted, but they were faithful. One of two churches Jesus had no words of rebuke for. Uh, Pergamum was a church in a hard place. They were being tempted to compromise. Jesus said Satan's throne was there. So that was a place that was very difficult to be a Christian. Thyatira, they were growing, but there was some false teaching in that church. 
that led to immorality. It wasn't just a matter of, is this true, is this not true? I see this verse this way, you see this verse this way. This teaching led to going away from Jesus. And then we saw Sardis. The church had had a reputation for being alive, but Jesus said mostly. There were a few people that were alive, but mostly that church was dead. And in Philadelphia, the church last week, the church of the open doors and rewards, the other church that Jesus had no words of rebuke for, no need for repentance for. And, and it's an last week hopefully was very encouraging because the church of Philadelphia had sinful people there, right? Their pastor was a sinner. Church, papers, church members were sinners. Uh, they, they, did not, they were not perfect people. But it's an encouragement, and it was probably a small church, but it was an encouragement that a church full of sinful people can be genuinely faithful to God, can genuinely seek to please God, and God can say what? Well done. Well, tonight we get just the opposite of Philadelphia. The church at Laodicea, the lukewarm church, uh, the city of Laodicea was founded in the third century uh, by a guy named Antiochus II. He was a Greek king that reigned in the, in the uh, third century BC and he named it after his wife, Laodice. Uh, unfortunately, they got divorced uh, a few years later, uh, but the name stuck and so the name Laodicea was after his wife who was divorced. I used to live in a town called Sturgis, Mississippi. Uh, Sturgis, Mississippi, there was a railroad that come through there, the Illinois Central. Um, they, uh, one of the rich stockholders there uh, wanted the city named after her, Mrs. Sturgis. And so she promised the town a lot of money. They, the, the, the railroad bought up the, uh, the, the land around the, uh, the land for the town. And so she promised money. And so they named it Sturgis, and she never sent any money. <laughs> <laughs> they're still a little bit bitter about that because they still they were telling me about it when I lived there. Uh, so anyway, that's the name of the, of the church. Let me give you the letters that Jesus wrote, letters that Paul wrote, these weren't written in a vacuum. You know, they weren't written where just, you know, I'm going to sit down one day and write the Bible. That's not what this is. And I want to give you a little history, a little background of the, of the city of Laodicea because the letter makes a lot more sense when you know the background. Okay, the background. Laodicea was a city that had water problems. Uh, to the north of them was a town called Hierapolis. They had hot springs that were like healing springs. People still go to that area for the hot springs today. Colossae was to the south of them. That's the book of Colossians. They were known for having cool, refreshing water. Laodicea's water supply was bad. I was known for that. They built a, an elaborate aqueduct that went underground. They carried their water for like six miles or so to get there. And uh, there was all kind of mineral deposits in the aqueduct. It was tepid, foul, lukewarm water. So the city always struggled with their water supply. It was one of the awful things about the city, uh, almost undrinkable. The second thing about Laodicea City that dominated the city was um, it was a great banking. It's a wealthy city, a great banking enterprise, a lot of banking going on there. In fact, they were so wealthy that in 60 AD, an earthquake leveled the whole area. Laodicea was one of the cities that was leveled by the earthquake. Uh, the emperor uh, offered help to rebuild the cities, and Laodicea refused his help. They said, we're wealthy enough, we'll rebuild our own city. We don't need your help. And uh, so they were, and, and, they, and they did. It wasn't a false thing. They were a wealthy city, proud of their wealth, proud of their banking. Uh, another thing that they were famous for was the wool industry. They had a, uh, some, some sheep there that had a real glossy, soft black wool. And so they were very, very well known for that, doing all kinds of claws and things. They had a couple of shawl plants there, actually, is what they had in uh, Laodicea. 
they also had a lot of respect uh, for their medical school. They had a medical school there that was especially well known for ISAV. People came from all over the world to get the ISAV supposedly helping uh, with people's eyesight. And so you got finance, you got wool, you got medical things, you got a lot going on. So this is a wealthy, self-sufficient city. And the attitude, watch this, this attitude of pride and wealth and self-sufficiency found its way into the church and Jesus said that is not the way my people operate. Self-sufficiency, pride and all that and this is uh, the most threatening letter, the most rebuking letter yet and the amazing thing is this is the most scathing letter Jesus has for any church and they're proud of themselves. That's the tragedy here. Jesus says you know, y'all are blind and naked and miserable, and they see themselves, we're doing great. We have this great church, and things are going wonderfully in our church, and it is a really strong word for us to say, Lord, give us eyes to see ourselves like you see us, to see our church like you see our church. So let's dive in and see what Jesus has to say. Look at Revelation 3:14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So look, if you will, and Jesus' self-description here. First of all, he says he's the amen. Uh, the word amen means so be it. It is a validation. So you hear people say amen in church sometimes. Uh, not often enough, according to my humble opinion, but you do hear people say amen occasionally. And what that means is, that's true. I agree. Let it be so. In fact, when Jesus says in the Gospels, verily, verily, I say unto you, literally, the word is amen, amen, I say unto you. What he was, I'm telling you, this is the truth. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians says, Jesus is the Amen to the, all the promises of God. In Isaiah, it talks about God being the God of truth. And the word there for him being the God of truth is literally the God of the amen. And so amen means that something is true, it's right, it's fixed. It's a verbal guarantee of what is being said is absolutely true. One person said it this way. Our Lord is the firm, fixed, certain, faithful, unchangeable amen because he is true all the time, in every way, and specifically because all he says is true, then all that he promises are true. Now, here's the thing about it tonight. He's fixing to say something to them they don't want to hear. And when he says to them, y'all are wretched, y'all are miserable, y'all are blind to your own spiritual condition, What's going to be the natural reaction to that? Oh, no, we're not, <laughs> right? Wouldn't that be our natural reaction if somebody came in and said, man, y'all are a mess. Our natural reaction is to excuse and rationalize and justify. And what Jesus is saying here, what I'm about to tell you, don't excuse yourself, don't rationalize, don't justify yourself. You need to understand that I'm telling you the truth, okay? Second thing he says here, not only is he the, is he the amen, but he's a true and faithful witness. And what this means is he is accurate. He is reliable. Uh, one of the things that I, when I started working on this um, message uh, that the, the day, the, uh, back on Thursday this week, 
Um, I usually praise God for three things a day. One of the things I praised God for that day, and I don't know where it came from. I just praised God that he was reliable, having no idea. <laughs> I didn't even think about what I was fixing to study. He is reliable. When Jesus says and convicts us of a sin, he's absolutely accurate about it. He's absolutely reliable. You see, the promises, I, when that morning when I praised God for him being reliable, what I was thinking about is the positive kind of things, right? God works all things together. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. The work that he started in me will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. But we also have to remember that the rebukes, and the corrections that Jesus gives are just as accurate as what we might call the positive promises. And the third way he identifies himself is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, when it says he's the beginning of the creation of God, does it mean he's the first person God created because Jesus is not created? Look, if you will, Colossians 1.15. The Bible says, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He has not been created. He is the creator. John 1, 3, through him, who Jesus, all things were made. I love the way John, it's like, okay, of course, I don't want you to misunderstand this in any way. Without him, nothing was made that's been made. Okay, you know, just clear it all up. He is that. When it says he's the beginning, it means the source. That word beginning can mean first, but it can also mean source. He is the source of all creation. He is the author of life. And it's interesting because Laodicea is really close to Colossae, where the letter of Colossians was written. And we know at Colossae, uh, they were having trouble with the deity of Christ. And that's why Paul makes a really, really big deal in Colossians to say that all things were created by him, for him, through him, he's the head of the church. And so uh, this, church, this uh, church at Laodicea is not that far away. In fact, Colossians 1, uh, in Colossians 4, 16, the Bible says, After this letter has been read to you, see to it that it is also read in the church at the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. We don't have that letter. That letter's been lost in, in antiquity, so we don't have that letter. But he says this, this heresy that Jesus somehow is not God himself has made it way, its way to the church at Colossae, probably got into Laodicea as well. But here's the point. Your view of Christ, how you see Jesus, dramatically impacts how you live for him. Okay? If you have a wrong view of Christ, that has horrendous impact, impact horrendous effects on, the, on your Christian life. And we're going to see that. I really believe that's part of their problem here. So Jesus identifies himself. I'm the truth. I'm the amen. I'm the creator. Now, here's what I have to say to you. Look, if you will, in verses 15 and 16. I know your works. I thought they weren't doing anything. As you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. The previous six churches have at least some word of commendation, at least something good, at least some kind of, there's a few of you who've not denied my name, some of you are doing pretty well, and there's none of that at Laodicea. There's not one single word of commendation, of way to go, of encouragement uh, to this church, and you can just imagine this letter's going to be upsetting. 
It would be difficult for these people to sort of take this in. Now remember, he says, I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm, he's referring. They, they get this. They know this. It's about their water supply. Their water supply is almost undrinkable. It's foul. It's tepid. It's lukewarm. It's, it's no good. Now, here's the thing. I used to preach this as I wish you were either cold or hot, cold being lost and hot being on fire for Jesus. And the more I've studied that this week, I've come to reconsider my view on that. Because here's the thing. In the ancient world, at fancy banquets, they would serve hot water or hot drinks. Uh, and when people travel through, they would serve cold water to travel because it's refreshing. As I said, Laodicea is bordered by two cities, Hierapolis to the north, who was famous for the hot springs. People still go to that area for healing. Colossae to the south was famous for their refreshing cold water. And what I think Jesus is saying is not, I wish you were either lost or saved. Because that really, the more you think about it, he's not pleased with lost people, Right? What he's saying is, I wish you were good for something. I know your works are not any good. He's not saying, I wish you were, you know, lost. Or he's saying, I wish there was something about you that was good, something about you that was helpful, something about you that was encouraging, something about you that, was, that, was, that shows your love for Jesus. You see, lukewarm is to profess Christianity while remaining untouched by its fire. You see, when you come to know Christ, the living God of the universe invades your life. You become, it's not just that you've just agreed to be a part of a church. The Holy Spirit has come in you. And to profess Christianity while remaining untouched by the fire of the Holy Spirit is a disaster. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, lukewarm faith is a faith that doesn't affect the way you live. You agree with the tenets, you agree with the doctrine, you agree with the Bible, but it doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect your heart of hearts in any way. One person says it this way, a lukewarm Christian is a Christian person who claims to be a Christian, but is not connected to Christ. They live a different life on Sunday than they do the rest of the week. A lukewarm Christian may be a person where their friends don't even know they're Christians, or if their friends know, they don't have much respect for their Christianity. A lukewarm Christian might be a Christian that would rather be accepted socially than reveal their Christian faith. We sang, I'd rather have Jesus. They would rather have their friend's approval. They'd rather have people say nice things about them. They'd rather be able to make business deals. They'd rather be respected in the community than be known as somebody on fire for Jesus. A lukewarm Christian probably doesn't read his Bible or her Bible very much. If so, it probably doesn't impact them very much. They probably don't pray very much. Or if they do, they pray, Lord, Lord, help me. Help me, help me get out of this difficult time. They probably don't share their faith very often, if at all. And they go to church because they were raised that way. It's the social thing to do or to see their friends, something like that. Their service for the Lord and lukewarmness is not being done with a real heart to please Jesus. It's more about what I can get out of it. I can get friends. I can get connections. I can, get, I can feel better about myself. And so this is what Jesus said to them. Look, you're lukewarm. You, you're not refreshing and you're not healing. You're not either. You're not, you're not, uh, you know, a hot drink is a good thing. A cold drink is a good thing. You're not either one of them. Look what he says in verse 17. 
because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing and you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked you see Jesus scolds this church while they allow their economic prosperity to cause its spiritual bankruptcy it reveals that despite its economic wealth, only Christ can provide spiritual wealth. And I think we still have that idea today. It's subtle. It runs kind of below the surface. But if I'm healthy and i got plenty of money, then God must be blessing me a lot. God must really, uh, His favor must be on my life. Why? I'm healthy. I have plenty of money. And being healthy and having plenty of money can run you into spiritual bankruptcy when that becomes your idol, and when you sing, I'd rather have that than Jesus. I'd rather have great health, I'd rather have money, I'd rather be respected than to live the life of the cross. It's an interesting thing here. He says, look, guys, you got your bank accounts, you got your jobs, you got your wool, you got your medicine, you got all this kind of stuff, and you have no idea you're spiritually bankrupt before God. You have no idea the spiritual reality, you don't know your true condition. Because life is going well, you think you are doing well. And he says, spitting them out, vomiting them out means I hate your self-sufficiency and your pride. What makes Jesus sick, what offends Jesus, is when we rely on our self-righteousness and we rely on what we can do. Remember the kids whenever your children were small and you try to teach them how to tie their shoes? And what would they say? Me do it. <laughs> Y'all remember that? Me do it. I do it. And that's fine and that's cute. But listen, when it comes to life as a Christian, we don't need to be saying me do it. We, we need to be saying, I want to follow Christ. And I want to see how Christ does it. And I want to depend on Him. These are people who are relying on themselves and their good deeds to make themselves uh, acceptable. Look, if you will, in verses 18 to 20. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Jesus says what? For what's really important in life, come to me. Come. You can't find it anywhere else. You can't find it in your friends. You're not going to find the, the true meaning of life. You're not even going to find it in your marriage. You're not going to find it in your money. You're not going to find it being successful. The best things in life you're only going to find in Christ. Gold refined in fire. What is that talking about? Robes. White robes to cover, to cover your nakedness. It sounds a lot like salvation, doesn't it? And it really does sort of beg the question, are there any saved people in this church? And it's not a question that I don't really know how to answer because it is a church, all right? And Jesus writes to them as a church, has no commendation for them though. And when he talks about you're naked and you're miserable and you're blind, I mean, these are things that describe lost people. And gold and fire sounds like salvation. Uh, white garments, being rich, the riches of Christ, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. I mean, these are questions that are really, really difficult. And what's encouraging here, what's encouraging here is verse 19. As many as I love, 
our rebuke and chasing. You see, in the, in the midst of this, such a tender appeal, right in the midst of this letter that says, man, you guys have got so far off track. But in the midst of it, he's like, I love you. I'm inviting you to come back to myself. I'm inviting you to find real life. I'm inviting you to find forgiveness. I'm inviting you to find new life. Understand where you're at. Understand that I love you. I was reading one of our international missionaries last year. said a 53-year-old, this is in Thailand, a 53-year-old Thai man uh, came into a, a medical clinic, and uh, one of our medical missionaries was there, and, and uh, he collapsed on the, on the floor. And um, they worked on him medically, and, and uh, while they were waiting on some, some more equipment to get there and things like that, they continued to kind of uh, do a medical emergency procedures. And while they awaited uh, for an ambulance to take him to a better facility, he came into a clinic. He needed to get to a hospital. While he waited uh, for the ambulance to arrive, uh, our medical missionary doctor led him to Christ. And he prayed to receive Jesus there. And the doctor asked him, he said, when did you first realized that you needed Christ he said when I collapsed on that floor right there he said when I collapsed on that floor helpless knowing I couldn't help myself I heard not literal out loud but I felt God calling to me saying it's time for you to get your heart right sometimes God has to sort of interrupt us with a big word hard word to help us see what we really need to do. And then he says what? I'm standing at the door and I knock. Now, we often say this is the door to somebody's heart and that's fine. I think that's I think you can you can use that okay, but that's not really the context here. The context here is they're having church and Jesus is locked outside. And he's knocking at the door of the, of his own church. Knocking at the door of the church. And the cool thing about that, man, that's horrible. But the cool thing is, and he says, he, he's saying, I, I, invite me in. I want to come in and be a part. And he says what? If anyone, the whole church doesn't have to invite him in, just one. He says, anyone, wants, when he says be zealous, be serious, give it all and repent. And you turn to me. If anyone will open the door, I will come in that way. What somebody else does can't keep you from being saved. What somebody else does can't keep you from having life in Jesus. What somebody else does uh, might discourage you, but they can't keep you from having the life that God has for you. And he says, I will come into them and dine with them and he with me. Now, the Greeks had three meals. Breakfast was, uh, was sort of a hasty meal, small meal, and they got out the door. Uh, lunch, oftentimes, sometimes the Greek men didn't even come home for lunch, sort of a picnic kind of a thing. If not, it was kind of a quick meal as well. Uh, the, the end of the meal, supper time, what we call supper time in the South, right? Supper time was the big meal of the day. That's the, that's the meal. Where they sat down and they talked and they laughed and they lingered and they shared their day and they told jokes and they told stories and, and they hung out together. And, and out of those three words, the word he uses is the evening. I want to come in, and I want to be a part of your life. And I want to talk, laugh, and hang out, and I want to be your very, very closest friend. It's a tragic story. The name of Christ is over the door of the church. The people in the pews are comfortable, but Jesus is locked out. And so tonight, he makes the promise, look, if that's you, 
I don't want it. Jesus doesn't want it to be this way. And I would love, wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall when this letter's read to the church of Laodicea? And they hear this, and don't you know, they start looking around. Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about all of us. And don't you want to know, who, who was it? Was it, was it a 17-year-old teenager that said, man, Lord, I want you to come into my heart. Was it an 85-year-old who said, Lord, I, I, I want you to come into to, to my heart. I see that I've been comfortable, but I've not been godly. I've been comfortable, but I've not been cross-carried. I've been comfortable, but I've not been Christ-like. And Lord, I see that I have gotten so far away from you. Or maybe I've never really come to you to start with. And Lord, I want new life in Jesus. I read an odd story. I'll close with this. I read an odd story. Uh, the other day. It's a story from 2021 about a French lady. Her name is Jean Pouchain, and uh, she, had an she has an unusual problem. She has been officially declared dead. She had a legal dispute with a former employer of, uh, employee of hers, and um, they got some issues going on back and forth. She was being sued for money. This employee thought that she owed them, and so the thing went through the, courts, the court um, system, and they actually had a hearing actually had a hearing and she was not notified about it and in the hearing they brought this they brought a motion and as I said it went through all kind of weird her lawyer said it's the most bizarre thing she's ever said this is this is a dissociated press it's not some kind of internet you know figment of my imagination um, they actually brought a motion and the courts declared her dead and she said it's just absolutely been tragic she can't get access to her bank accounts she can't get access to her income uh, she's afraid to leave her house uh, because she can't prove she's alive. She found out when she tried to cash checks at the bank, and the bank's like, you don't, you're dead. Like, not. <laughs> her passport's been revoked. She can't get out of the country. And so uh, she's in the middle of this thing, and, and it's just this snowball and judicial errors that's going along, and her husband's been, been fined. He has to pay money. And, and they, but, of course, they don't have a death certificate, right? And she said at first... I had a hard time believing this is actually happening. And while the error is so enormous, she said it's really hard to admit. And she's like, you know, I'm really dependent on my lawyer to get this overturned because, in her words, it's my last chance to recover my life. And see, the only real life that you and I have is in Jesus. That's why it's so beautiful that we sing that song, I'd rather have Jesus. Why? The true riches are in Him and Him alone. When we come to Him and say, oh, Lord, I open my heart, open my life, and invite you in, He comes in and brings real life. Would you stand, please, with heads bowed and eyes closed? With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around tonight. we pray tonight it's a hard word last letter to the church um, that idea of being lukewarm where the truths of Christ hit our head but they don't ignite our heart we get comfortable with the name of Christ over the door but our heart has not been inflamed and we're not really very useful we don't provide healing and we don't provide quenching a thirst. We're just kind of half-hearted in the middle. And
proud of it and proud of it. And so tonight, the call is to humble ourselves before God and to recognize the only good thing about us is Jesus and to recognize that he is willing. He loves us. He wants to provide life. He wants to do life. He wants to have that lingering uh, presence all day long in our lives if we will but turn and trust and follow him. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray for real life, godly life, abundant life. We pray, Father, that where we are blind, you would open our eyes. Help us, Lord, not to just see what other people see. Help us, Lord, not to just assume that things are great because uh, we feel like we're doing okay. But Lord, help us to allow the Holy Spirit to turn His gaze on our hearts and help us to see where we're really at with you. Thank you. Thank you that when you rebuke us, it's out of love. It's out of love and out of a desire to come in in a fuller way in our lives. With his bowed eyes closed, and we're looking around, Lisa begins to play softly.